I'm Speech Thomas from the hip-hop crew Arrested Development. On the new VPM podcast, Track Change, I take you behind the walls of Richmond City Jail, where I help four men record an album and hear how they're trying to break free from a cycle of addiction and incarceration. Been so long since I've been free. Subscribe to Track Change in your podcast app. This series contains content with details about sexual violence. Listener discretion is advised. From Story Mechanics and VPM. Previously on Admissible. I always look at Miss Burton as a person that saw the future when no one else did. She's sort of viewed as the patron saint of justice and innocence. I had heard of her as this person that had saved these samples, that we were able to get 13 or however many exonerations it is. That's what, you know, I find so disheartening, is that she wasn't as great as I thought she was. She was everybody's hero. The police in Charlotte thought she was the greatest thing since sliced bread. She was like Mary Jane's legend. Why would somebody who's been doing this for a long time make these kind of errors? There had to be a cause. Overwork, underpaid, underloved. Where are you today? Uh, well, I'm specifically in my closet in my apartment. Patricia Cornwell is a number one best-selling crime novelist. She's the author of the K. Scarpetta series about a fictional medical examiner. I've called Cornwell to ask about a different character. If I can't find something in one of my own books, we should probably end this interview before it starts. The character I'm interested in is a forensic analyst named Betty. Close to retirement, Betty had steel gray hair, strong features, and hazel eyes that could be unreadable or shyly sensitive, depending on whether you took the trouble to get to know her. I liked her the first time I met her. The chief serologist was meticulous, her acumen as sharp as a scalpel. In private, she was an ardent bird. This meticulous serologist is fictional, but she sounds an awful lot like someone we know. Mary Jane was at that time in a serology lab upstairs. Yep, Mary Jane Burton. Before writing crime novels, Cornwell worked in the medical examiner's office at the Richmond lab, right downstairs from Mary Jane. I know very little about her personally. What I do know is that she had an obvious aura of seniority, gray hair, short gray hair, always in a lab coat. I don't remember her joking very much. I remember she was very intense. I think she's one of these people that you would call relentless. And she started out back in the day when there really weren't such a thing as forensic labs. So she was a real trailblazer and was a force to be reckoned with. For a long time, I also knew very little about Mary Jane. I was so excited to learn about this force to be reckoned with. And then I met Gina Demas, who raised serious allegations about Mary Jane's work. And that image that I had of her crumbled. Mary Jane Burton is like a silhouette, a blank outline of a person at the center of this story. Understanding who she really was feels super important if we're going to make sense of Gina's allegations. So in this episode, we're going to try to fill in that outline. Who was Mary Jane Burton? I'm Tessa Kramer, and this is Admissible. 
When I first started reporting on Mary Jane Burton, one thing kept coming up. She was very, very tall. Mary Jane was tall. She was tall? She was probably about 5'11". She was probably six foot. Yeah, she belonged to the tall club. The Cincinnati Tall Club. The social group for tall people. Sophie got very into finding out about Mary Jane and the whole tall club thing. Maybe because she's 5'9 herself. And how tall are you, Marianne? Well, I was 5'10", but I'm strong. <laughs> I think I'm about 5'7 or 5'8 right now. Mary Ann Tebby met Mary Jane through the Cincinnati Tall Club in the 1950s. They were just out of college. Mary Jane had a degree in chemistry, and she was working in cancer research. This was years before she got into forensics. She would measure everybody. We had this uh, stick that they called Hugo, H-U-G-O, that if you weren't 5'10", the girls, you couldn't fit in. What was different about the California club... We could do a whole podcast just about the tall club, but aside from tall... What was Mary Jane actually like? I didn't know of anybody that didn't like her. <laughs> she was just a really all-around good person. First time I ever heard of Mary Jane was when my mother was talking about her brother, John W. Burton, married a young lady from Cincinnati named Mary Jane that he had met in the Cincinnati Tall Club. Keith Betcher is Mary Jane's nephew and the unofficial record keeper of the family. He thinks he has some old photos of Mary Jane, so Sophie and I follow him and his wife Jan down to the basement, which is impeccably organized, I might add. This is a map of the storage, so I know if I look at D2, I'm going to find box 46. We have her wedding album, we think. I don't think I know it. Hers was a white box. Yeah, I remember that. That's, that's it. it. That's it. Ooh, first box. I love to see good organization pay off. We take the album upstairs and start flipping through. All right, what do we have All right. here? So this is Mary Jane and this is Johnny. Oh, that's a cute one. Mary Jane actually looks happy. Must <laughs> is have been surprising. <laughs> well, she she wasn't particularly a person who showed a lot of emotion. Mary Jane and Johnny were only married for three years when Johnny suddenly died of pneumonia. This was one of several early hardships in Mary Jane's life. Her father died when she was young. She got polio and walked with a limp for the rest of her life. At one point, she'd been pregnant with twins, but she had a miscarriage. She never remarried or had children. Mary Jane and Johnny had opened a bakery together. A few years after his death, she sells it and gets a job at the Cincinnati coroner's office. This is her first step into the world of forensic science, a world that would consume so much of the rest of her life. I visited her one time, and we were sitting around the kitchen table, and we were making rape kits. Sitting around the table making rape kits with Mary Jane is her nephew, John. And they had, like, cotton swabs and little test tubes with lids on them and gauze and paperwork and things that she would distribute to the police department and the hospitals, too, that if someone came in and said that they were raped, it was like a checklist. Get a sample of this, do something under the fingernails. This is John's recollection, and we really couldn't confirm this. But the point being, forensic science is that new. This is the late 1960s, and there are not a lot of established protocols. People like Mary Jane are kind of making this stuff up as they go, like how to even collect evidence from a crime scene. 
Her nephew sees this as a sign of her dedication to the work. She just threw everything into it. The crime lab was her life. In 1971, Mary Jane lands a job at the police crime lab in Charlotte, North Carolina. So she packs up her car and heads south. I had been assigned a rape case, and as I was going through the evidence, uh, I ended up meeting with a, a woman rather recently come to Charlotte Lab. I meet Peter Gilchrist at his house on the coast of Maine. He's retired after a long career as the district attorney in Charlotte, where he overlapped with Mary Jane briefly. Enough to make an impression, though. I remember being in the lab and her showing me how she had taken a big roll of craft paper, the stuff that you wrap packages in, and she'd spread it out on the table, and then she had put pants on there. And, I mean, she had gone through there with a, a brush or magnifying glass and, you know, was looking at these things. This is a good time to mention that Mary Jane is doing a lot more than blood type testing. Her official title in Charlotte is a criminalist, meaning she worked with all kinds of crime scene evidence. Blood, hair, glass fragments, you name it. Mary Jane had a chemistry degree, but like many forensic scientists in that day, she was pretty much self-taught, which made her results and what she could do with the evidence all the more impressive. Peter told me about a particular case where Mary Jane was able to match glass from a shattered Christmas ornament found at a crime scene to glass fragments found in a suspect's sneakers. You sort of had that overwhelming physical evidence that was quite unusual. Mm -hmm. I don't want to put words in that, but it sounds like Mary Jane's work was what sort of clinched that case. Oh, there was, there was no question. I know the other folks in the crime lab were impressed, too. This does seem impressive. Gina told me that Mary Jane was like a miracle worker, often the only one who could make the case for the police. But knowing what we know from Gina, it's also concerning to hear these stories. For one thing, this science was so speculative at the time. People described the early days of forensics as a Wild West. Analysts with very little formal education in forensics were writing the rules and figuring things out as they went, helping put people behind bars all along the way. Um, on the phone when we spoke, you described her, I think the term you used was that she was like a bird dog, and I wanted to ask what you meant. We'd get very interested in something and just really keep digging. You know, when she would find something, she'd really keep working along. I remember thinking it was a loss when we lost her. Lost her to the Bureau of Forensic Science in Richmond, Virginia, where she'd spend the next 15 years as the state's chief serologist. It's in Richmond that Mary Jane's career as a crime-busting scientist really takes off. The police would come, they would have evidence, and they would say, Mary Jane, what can you do? Mary Jane, we got this, that, and the other. What can you do? Dr. Marcella Fierro was the medical examiner in Richmond. And side note, Dr. Fierro was the inspiration for Dr. K. Scarpetta, the main character in Patricia Cornwell's books. But anyway, back to Mary Jane. She would be there on the weekend doing cases. And I remember one day I said to her, Mary Jane, you've got to quit working every weekend 
because if you continue to do that, they will never hire you any help. And they, they did hire her, another forensic serologist, Joan, I can't remember Joan's last that name. That would be Joan Fonts, the other certified serologist in Richmond. She and Joan were producing such terrific work that they were totally overloaded. And I knew from the beginning that she always saved swatches because the materials that we sent her would come back with that information on the report that she had retained a swatch of this, that, and the other thing. The clippings of evidence. Everyone seemed to know that Mary Jane saved them. She even instructed the other serologists to do the same. The big question, when all of this came back to light in the 2000s, was why? She developed an archive foreseeing that there would be advanced technology in the future that might be able to do more. This is a popular hypothesis. A lot of people think that Mary Jane saved the clippings because of some sort of foresight, knowing that they'd be used for good someday. People, including her family and many of the exonerees. But even before learning about Gina and the issues with Mary Jane's work, something about this foresight theory always struck me as a bit far-fetched. And then Shirley Patterson, the lab's secretary, had a different theory. They used to call her the show-and-tell girl because that's why she taped all those things to her worksheets. That's coming up after the break. They used to call her the show-and-tell girl because that's why she taped all those things to her worksheets. She would take them into court and say, see, this is the Q-tip, or see, this is the blood swatch, and see, that makes an impression on a jury. That's Shirley Patterson, the office secretary. And her theory of why Mary Jane saved clippings? We actually found some evidence to back this up in some old trial transcripts. State your name, please. Mary Jane Burton. And your occupation? I'm a forensic scientist. This is not Mary Jane Burton. It's a voice actor. I routinely examine items submitted for blood, body secretions, hairs, and natural fibers. We searched high and low for a recording of Mary Jane. Never found one. But I've read lots of transcripts of her trial testimony. All right. And they really give a sense of her voice. And a sense of this show-and-tell routine. First of all, let me explain. Whenever you have close physical contact, you're going to have an exchange in material. In trial after trial, Mary Jane would do her own version of Forensics 101 for the jury. In the case of rape or sodomy, there are secretions that potentially could be transferred. She'd walk them through the fundamentals. In the case of rape, if there is an exchange of secretions, we take advantage of this and we try to determine the secretion type. Then it's show and tell time. These are blue jeans, and I identified spermatozoa heads in extracts of the stain from the crotch of the blue jeans. You can see the hole here. The crotch was stained, and I cut out a little portion and extracted it with water and put it on a slide. Coworkers say that Mary Jane kept this up right until the end of her career, which came around the time of a case we talked about earlier in this series. Here's Patricia Cornwell. She was around when the Timothy Spencer case happened. 
The Timothy Spencer case, otherwise known as the South Side Strangler case. This was a big moment in Mary Jane's career, one of her very last cases. And I see this as like a changing of the guard moment in the history of forensic science. The moment when DNA replaced serology as the best method for analyzing blood and bodily fluids. When serology started shifting over to DNA right about the time Mary Jane left. And I just think that was her whole life was that job. That's Shirley again. I believe Mary Jane would have worked up till the day she died, if you want to know the truth. That's how much she loved her work. But Mary Jane didn't work up until the day she died. Instead, she suddenly retired. It was kind of fishy about why she left. I mean, we were just told that she was leaving and that, I mean, it really wasn't discussed or anything. Shirley's not the only one who thinks there was something fishy about Mary Jane's retirement. Mary Jane's nephew, Keith, and his wife, Jan, tell us that around 1988, Mary Jane was just starting to talk about retirement. She had a plan to come back to Cincinnati, and she came to us one day and said, will you move me when the time comes? We're saying, yeah. We said, well, when, when is this going to be? And she said, oh, probably three or four years. We go, sure, no problem. Six Here. months later, she said, hey, I'm coming back to Cincinnati. Are you going to be available such and such a weekend? And it's like, sure. <laughs> Why did she make it quicker than what she had thought? Was she just ready to retire? Or did... Well, no, I, something happened. All I know is she retired way sooner than we thought. It was very sudden, and there was never, I have no clear memory of why. No, she never talked about it. Now, this raises questions for me. We know that this was the moment when DNA replaced serology as the gold standard for analyzing bodily fluids. Maybe the DNA era simply made Mary Jane Burton, chief serologist, obsolete. Or maybe her sudden departure had to do with the quality of her work. In the late 80s, Dr. Paul Ferrara became the director of the lab, and he was certainly aware of her issues. Mary Jane's nephew John told us that Mary Jane mentioned some conflict with Ferrara, but like so many things in her life, she did not reveal any more. Keith and Jan got the sense that Mary Jane didn't want to get into it, so they did as she asked and helped her move to a quiet retirement home outside Cincinnati. They saw her every once in a while, had her over for holidays, and then one year... We had her for Christmas dinner. She said, I'm going to Florida for the first two weeks in January. Get away from Cincinnati. A week later, he gets a call from his wife, Jan. She calls me at work and said, Mary Jane's dead. And I said, no, Mary Jane's in Florida. Jane says, that's right. Mary Jane's dead in Florida. In January of 1999, Mary Jane died at a timeshare in Florida. There was no autopsy, but her family thinks it was an aneurysm. She was 70. Mary Jane was a devout Catholic all her life, and she left hundreds of thousands of dollars to Catholic charities in her will. And that could have been the end of her story. Until a few years later, news breaks about the miraculous discovery of some clippings that Mary Jane had taped to her case files. Reporters start trying to find out who was this mysterious scientist. 
What I specifically remember is a drinking problem. That's former Washington Post reporter Candace Rondeau. And this lines up with something that Keith and Jan told us about clearing out Mary Jean's apartment in Cincinnati after she died. We found more scotch. We found more scotch than really. Oh, Oh, my God. And it was in places you wouldn't expect to find scotch. Sophie interviewed Mary Jane's longtime friend, Eunice Snyder, who also said this was something Mary Jane grappled with. I think this was after she retired and she didn't have any responsibility and... uh, it developed, and um, I'm sorry, this isn't good to talk about. I no, hadn't I'm... meant to bring this up. I mean, I think no one is perfect. We all know that. No. And it's just something she dealt with? Dealt with because she was lonesome. After she retired, she didn't have anything really to do. I mean, she'd been so busy all her life, and then all of a sudden, nothing. That's when she took up her bridge seriously and uh, I guess her drinking seriously. (laughs) In the course of our reporting, we learned something else. In July of 1979, someone broke into Mary Jane's apartment in the middle of the night and raped her. We found a police report that confirms this and a coworker of Mary Jane's also brought this up. She was sexually assaulted at one time. While I was working in that lab, they whisked that evidence off to the FBI because they didn't, you know, we were there working under her and they didn't want us working on the evidence. Did she ever talk about it? or never. We knew because the evidence had been submitted. Nobody ever talked about it. No, and she certainly never talked about it. I want to be really clear. This happened to Mary Jane after Gina blew the whistle on her work. I find a lot of Mary Jane's life story to be sort of tragic. I imagine her walking into an empty home every night after a long day spent analyzing evidence from horrific, violent cases. How did she process the toll of her work? Without being able to talk to Mary Jane, we'll really never know exactly how her life outside the lab may have impacted her work. One thing we do know... She loved being a forensic scientist, but maybe just a little too much. She thought she was helping. Her job was to help him catch the guy. This is Gina. You should be totally objective. It's really hard because you develop a relationship with the policeman. You want to help them, and that's kind of what happened to Mary Jane. She was the hero. And you're not a hero. You're a scientist. That's all you're supposed to be. I, I don't think she didn't care. I think she thought she was doing a good job. I do. This doesn't excuse the very serious problems with Mary Jane's work. It helps explain them. But what about everyone else? What about the people in charge of the lab? Ooh, this will be handy for y'all. Look here. Chronology of the Demas whistleblowing efforts. Next time, what did the lab do when Gina blew the whistle? Admissible is produced and hosted by Tessa Kramer. Our executive producer is Ellen Horn. Original reporting by Tessa Kramer and Sophie Behrman. 
with additional reporting by Ben Pavier and Whitney Evans. Our editor is Danielle Elliott, with additional editing by Ellen Horn. Our production team is Dana Bialik, Chloe Wynn, Gilda DiCarli, Leslie Nyer, Kristen Vermilia, and Kim Naderfane-Peterson. Gavin Wright is VPM's managing producer for podcasts. Meg Lindholm is the director of podcast production. Sound design and mix by Charles Michelet. Music by Del Toro Sound and Story Mechanics. And with additional music by APM. Our theme music is by me, Brian J. Howard of Del Toro Sound. Admissible Season 1 Shreds of Evidence is produced by Story Mechanics and VPM. Virginia's home for public media. We are distributed by iHeartMedia. VPM.